0: This is the History of the World podcast, with me, Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 39, The Battle of Actium. episode, we go back to the Balkan Peninsula and Greece. All of the Greek lands were now part of the Empire of the Roman Republic, but not always. The area of Greece that we are discussing during this episode is on the west coast, north of the Peloponnese and south of the island of Corfu. It is a very notable body of water called the Ambracian Gulf, which is very noticeable on a map of Greece. It is an enclosed body of water that stretches into the Balkan Peninsula by approximately 40 kilometres. The entrance to this body of water is via a 700 metre long channel which leads into the Ionian Sea. So simply picture what looks like a massive inland lake accessible by a very narrow waterway into the vast expanse of the Mediterranean Sea. The settlement called Actium was on the south side promontory of the entrance to the Gulf. And it's also important to remember this geography when we come to the actual battle itself. It is likely that this area of Greece was under the influence of people of the Mycenaean culture during the 2nd millennium BCE. We know that the Mycenaeans had sea trade, and so it is possible that they used the Gulf to their advantage in this area of their culture. But we do not have any direct evidence of this, but certainly the amount of settlements of Mycenaean remains excavated suggests that this was a prosperous area. As we might expect, there is very little evidence about the areas around the gulf in the direct aftermath of the late Bronze Age collapse. But there is evidence of human occupation by various tribes and mythological references in the writings of Homer. The area directly to the south of the entrance to the gulf in the ancient world is referred to as Akarnanea. And it is considered that the dialect of this area was a type of Dorian which links it closely to the Spartans by comparison to other areas of ancient Greece. But also it was distinct from Sparta with its dialect linking it more closely to Peloponnesian societies living around the settlement of Olympia as opposed to the Peloponnesian societies at Sparta. If we travel north from Acarnania to the other side of the entrance to the gulf then we are entering the lands of ancient Epirus which was on the extremities of the lands of ancient Greek culture. We could dare to say that its proximity made its culture a little less Greek than Akarnania as we travel further away from the centers of Greek culture and this would be because of the influence of cultures such as the Illyrians to their own north. So the Ambracian Gulf was in the northwest of the ancient Greek cultured lands of the Balkan Peninsula. It can be fair to say that when we move into the era of classical antiquity, that these lands were contested over, but this doesn't make it unique, as this was typical of all Greek lands as the various Greek tribes and their geographical neighbors jostled for supremacy over one another in this area, containing a very dense amount of cultures and tribes. Akarnania would find themselves fending off the advances of the Achaeans of the northern Peloponnese. The Epirates would do a much better job of defending their position and making advances into the territories of others. If we'd move forward to the 4th century BCE, Epirus would be able to recognise the cultural success of the Macedonians to their northeast and entered into a marriage alliance with them, signalling a political alliance between the two emerging nation-states. On the other hand, the Akarnanians, to the south, were seeking assistance from the Spartans in that typical Greek game of chopping and changing of political alliances, according to the current and ever-changing political landscape. So we can say that the land to the north of the entrance to the gulf was distinct from the lands to the south and each had their own independent political and cultural standings, ties and issues. North met south when Philip II of Macedonia engaged with a coalition of Greek city-states which included Akarnania at the Battle of Chironia in 338 BCE. We focused on this period of history more closely back in episode 17. Philip's victory brought all of the lands around the Ambracian Gulf under Macedonian influence. So we can see that the lands to the north and the south were now politically linked. After the time of Alexander the Great and the Diadochi, the lands around the Ambracian Gulf returned to being in the middle of political rivalry. The Epirates would have more influence initially, but as Epirus became less powerful during the course of the 3rd century BCE, the Acarnanians would regain a more independent position. The events of the 2nd century BCE were much more significant to the future of this area. The Macedonians were still the most dominant entity of the Balkan peninsula when compared to its neighbours but the growing power at the time was the Roman Republic in firm control of the Italian peninsula to the west and the surrounding lands including having a foothold in the Illyrian lands to the north of Epirus. This presence would be quite unnerving for the Macedonians especially as the Romans were working hard to be influential over the politics of the Balkan Peninsula and the many city-states continuously niggling for power through conflicts and diplomatic alliances. The Roman Republic The Roman Republic started out as a small city-state kingdom during the first half of the first millennium BCE before a Senate of Politicians overthrew the last King of Rome and declared themselves as no longer a monarchy. For a small city-state, Rome would achieve the unimaginable over the course of the next few centuries, becoming the most powerful empire that the world had ever seen. You'd certainly be forgiven for thinking that Roman politics must have been seamless in order for them to achieve this. The reality is that the Roman Republic was plagued by civil disputes between the social classes. At the beginning, the Senate who presided over the Roman city-state were the aristocrats. And if you were not born into an aristocratic family, then you would not have the opportunity to be a Roman senator. We took a close look at this period during episode 26. So there was a clear distinction between the aristocratic families and non aristocratic citizens. The aristocrats were called the patricians and the other citizens were called the plebeians. The plebeians were the ones who really kept Rome going doing all of the manual work including agriculture and manufacturing and even manning the Roman army. So when the plebeians threatened to secede from the Roman Republic in order to start their own governed state, the patricians had no choice but to alter their constitution to accommodate the plebeians, ensuring that the plebeians had more rights and more ability to be directly involved in Roman politics. This class struggle developed slowly over many generations right up to the beginning of the 3rd century BCE. And it is referred to as the Conflict of the Orders. The 3rd century BCE would see Rome in conflict with Carthage in a truly international war. So Rome was now a global powerhouse mixing it up with the strongest foreign nations. These were the Punic Wars which we covered over four episodes starting from episode 27. Inevitably due to the sheer size and international influences of both Rome and Carthage, other lands would be drawn into the conflict. We know that the Macedonians were very nervous about Roman interference in the Balkans as early as the Second Punic War and were quite likely to be willing to physically support the Carthaginian cause had it not been for Rome's ability to keep them both apart. So with Rome getting the measure of both the Carthaginians and the Macedonians, by the end of the 3rd century BCE, they had become the most powerful entity of the Mediterranean and everyone else would now be in their shadow. Going into the 2nd century BCE and Rome would finally put an end to both the Carthaginian and Macedonian threats by eliminating Carthage from the world map and by conquering Macedonian territory and carving it into smaller territories. So now Rome was in control of the Balkan Peninsula, including the lands around the Ambracian Gulf. However, this was just the start of the descent towards this conflict. Some historians describe the middle of the second century BCE as an apogee of the Roman Republic. In reality the Roman Republic continued to expand its territory but internally the politics of Rome would begin to decline. Similar pressures that emerged at the start of the Roman Republic began to emerge again in a slightly different way. The fruits of Roman expansion were being enjoyed by the wealthiest men of Rome. The soldiers who had given years of their own blood, sweat and tears to achieve this were given very little indeed. So in the eyes of many, the rich were getting richer, and this was not acceptable. So there was a political faction that emerged called the Popularis. Generally speaking, they would support the cause of the average citizen by calling for reforms in Roman law, such as land distribution no longer being monopolised by the wealthiest citizens and being distributed among the citizens. Those Romans who believed that the Republic did not need to be reformed were called the optimates and stood opposite the popularis. So there was a definite distinction and most politicians would support one faction or the other. Generally speaking, it would be the popularis on the outside looking in, with the optimates dominating the Senate. However, the popularis cause was a strong and well-supported one, so it wasn't going away. Both sides felt very strongly about their position and feelings, and actions would escalate. Leading advocates of the popularis cause included the Gracchi brothers, who have long been celebrated as among the earliest known populist politicians fighting the cause of the non-aristocratic classes. However, both brothers reached a grisly end. Tiberius was killed in a riot instigated by these Roman political differences. Gaius took his own life after witnessing what he may have perceived as a futile and never-ending conflict. Whether or not we perceive the Gracchi as the revolutionary good guys or the anarchic instigators of violence in Rome, their legacy cannot be denied. The next major character of the Popularist cause was Gaius Marius. Marius would actually compete for control of Rome when his political rival Sulla of the Optimates was distracted by foreign affairs. Being popularis did not make anyone anti-Roman, as Marius was responsible for making important reforms to the Roman military. Many of the politicians of the Popularist cause ascended through the Roman military ranks. This is exactly how Julius Caesar made his way into Roman politics. But by Caesar's lifetime, the culture of Roman politics was one where you had to sleep with your eyes open. In order for Julius Caesar to get into a position of prominence, he would have to make strange alliances with optimate politicians who had individual motivations that stepped on the toes of others. Caesar was clever enough to use these opportunities to advance his own political career, but his tactics would ultimately catch up with him when his ally Pompey decided that their individual ambitions now clashed and he attempted to break up Caesar's Gallic War Army and leave him out in the cold. Caesar was not interested in doing this, and so Rome was plunged into a civil war. Pompey was defending the Optimate cause, while Caesar was fighting the Popularist cause. Mark Antony Mark Antony was a third cousin, once removed, of Julius Caesar. He would start getting noticed as a young man in his twenties, campaigning for the Romans in Judea and Egypt. But he may never have gone there had he not been escaping from people who he owed gambling debts to. His military performance was very impressive and it wouldn't be long before his abilities were requested in Gaul, alongside his cousin Julius Caesar Mark Antony would offer great assistance to Caesar in Gaul and it is highly likely that he was an important part of the Roman success Antony earned a role as a Roman quaestor, which followed in Caesar's footsteps earning him a role in the Roman Senate and became an important Roman priest Caesar himself was a Roman priest too When Pompey became hostile towards Caesar, choosing to deny him a path back to Rome alongside his army, Mark Antony chose to stand beside Caesar. Effectively, he had ascended through the ranks to become Caesar's second-in-command. When Caesar's civil war broke out between Caesar and Pompey, Mark Antony would accompany Caesar and help him to finally defeat Pompey by commanding the left wing of the Popularis army to their victory. When Caesar travelled to Egypt to find Pompey, he found Pompey had been murdered by the Egyptian pharaoh Ptolemy XIII, which prompted Caesar to declare Ptolemy as his enemy and support Ptolemy's sister, Cleopatra VII, in becoming the sole pharaoh of Egypt. While this was happening, Mark Antony remained in Rome where he would rather unsuccessfully assume the role of Governor of Italy. His failure in this role led him to disappearing into the political wilderness for a few years until Caesar returned to Rome and he would appoint Antony as his co-consul in 44 BCE. Even with everything that Julius Caesar had achieved, he had still not achieved enough influence over Rome to eliminate the danger to himself. There were still enough opponents within the Roman Senate who would despise Caesar for the social changes being made following the defeat of Pompey and his supporters, and this would result in Caesar's murder in the year 44 BCE. Caesar's murder would leave Mark Antony as the sole consul, and the prime candidate to take up Caesar's cause the distribution of wealth among the citizens. Mark Antony would now be at the forefront of the popularist cause. Octavian. Upon the reading of Caesar's will, it was discovered that Caesar had declared an adopted son to be his heir to his political position. The heir was not Mark Antony, but it was Caesar's own great-nephew, whose name was Octavian. When Caesar died, Octavian was only 18 years old and perhaps too young to be able to step into Caesar's shoes. Mark Antony was not happy with this arrangement, believing that he was the right man for the job. So he seized Caesar's treasury, denying Octavian the opportunity to use it to his own good effect. Mark Antony's behaviour made him unpopular with the people and unpopular with the Roman Senate, so Octavian was invited to amalgamate his troops with those of the Roman consuls and do battle with Mark Antony. Mark Antony was pushed back by these combined forces but the two Roman consuls were killed in the battles Octavian saw this as an opportunity to make a bid for power and demanded that he be named as a consul to be allowed to lead a consular army and so he was allowed. However the Roman Senate was more interested in regaining control of Rome so they attempted to push Octavian into the background. Octavian would soon realise that the power of the Senate was too much to be able to challenge it on his own and so he would actually make an alliance with the new Pontifex Maximus called Lepidus and Mark Antony himself, to whom Lepidus had remained secretly close. Lepidus was very much the silent member of the new triumvirate, while Antony and Octavian successfully pursued and defeated Caesar's murderers who were over in the Balkan Peninsula. This meant that between them, Antony and Octavian had regained influence over the entire Roman Republic. Antony would effectively control the eastern provinces, while Octavian would head back to Rome. Octavian would need to turn his attention to dealing with the forces of Pompey's son, Sextus Pompeius, who was stationed in Sicily. In the meantime, Mark Antony was befriending the Egyptian pharaoh Cleopatra VII, Into supporting his cause against the Parthians. The two men would agree to trade military resources in order to help each other overcome their respective opponents, although it is said that Octavian didn't really keep his side of the bargain. In order for Octavian to deal with Sextus' Sicilian revolt, he would utilise the abilities of a highly admired military commander called Marcus Agrippa. Agrippa... Would defeat Sextus, which eventually led to Sextus's execution. Then Octavian would expel Lepidus from the triumvirate before the triumvirate, as an official constitutional arrangement, expired in 33 BCE. Antony, who by this time had children with Cleopatra, had by now decided that he needed to ensure that he should now take control of the Roman Republic and transfer its capital from Rome to Alexandria in Cleopatra's Egypt. Roman citizens would be upset by this suggestion and this was good for Octavian, who by now was becoming favoured by the Roman public. Octavian then singled out Cleopatra as the poisonous influence on Mark Antony and the real enemy of Rome so Octavian declared war on Cleopatra and naturally Mark Antony favoured Cleopatra prelude to the battle the year was now 32 BCE and Mark Antony had decided that he should prepare his naval fleet for conflict and headed to Ephesus on the Aegean coast of Anatolia to gather it together. Cleopatra's Egyptian fleet was accompanying this huge fleet. Then Antony sailed his fleet across to Athens to meet with his land armies. In the meantime, Agrippa had sailed across from the Italian peninsula and taken control of the Peloponnesian fort of Methone, which had been fortified by Antony himself. So long before the battle itself, tactical moves were being made by both sides in anticipation of the battle itself. Antony's intentions were to sail across the Ionian Sea and attack the Italian peninsula itself. But Octavian was very aware of this and ensured that his own fleet was stationed to prevent the Ionian crossing. So Antony decided to station his fleet inside the vast Ambracian Gulf where he could continue preparations until he felt confident enough to be able to successfully take on Octavian's fleet. Agrippa would use this as an opportunity to continue to attack coastal Greek settlements and so there was somewhat of a stalemate going on into the year 31 BCE. Antony had control of the opening to the Ambracian Gulf, but Antony was keen for his fleet not to emerge from the Gulf and engage with Octavian's fleet in open waters. Antony wanted to do battle when he was ready, and this was possible while he had complete control of the Gulf's entrance. So Octavian and Agrippa continued ravaging the Greek western coast until Antony felt the pressure to abandon the north promontory and move all of his troops to the south at the settlement of Actium. This would mean that Octavian had partial control of the entrance to the gulf and so Antony had to prepare for battle. So on the 1st of September 31 BCE, Antony told his troops to prepare for battle the following day. Mark Antony had around 20,000 men and 2,000 archers loaded onto around 300 galleys. Mark Antony was utilising the large and powerful Quinqueremes, which Octavian would certainly not have wanted to be ramming his smaller Liburnian galleys. Antony was able to load his quinqueremes with ballistas, capable of catapulting missiles towards enemy galleys. Although Octavian possibly had slightly less infantry, sources differ regarding whether he had more galleys than Antony. Nonetheless, Octavian would have around 3,000 archers, and Octavian's infantrymen would have been trained well to use the heavy projectile plum batter darts, which would soar great distances with devastating effects. Antony really had no choice but to engage with Octavian now, as Octavian had won this war of attrition by effectively besieging the fleet of Antony within the Ambracian Gulf, denying them vital supplies. Antony had witnessed defections from his ranks to Octavian due to these pressures and there were also reports of a malaria outbreak which depleted some of his manpower. So Antony was really feeling the pressure to act as time would only surely make his position worse. A man who had defected from Cassius to Mark Antony during the Liberators Civil War of the 40s BCE was now also doing the same thing to Mark Antony. His name was Quintus Delius and by switching sides to Octavian he would also take details of Mark Antony's battle plan with him as well. So fortune was certainly not favouring Mark Antony going into this conflict. Now it was the morning of the 2nd of September and Octavian had allowed Agrippa command of the fleet which positioned themselves on the Ionian side of the entrance to the gulf while Antony commanded his own naval fleet to filter out of the gulf into the open waters The Battle of Actium Antony's aim was simply to break out from their besieged position within the Ambracian Gulf. It would have very much suited Antony for there to have been absolutely no military exchanges at all, but the reality is that this was incredibly unlikely. So Antony arranged his fleet in a bulbous formation at the mouth of the Gulf's entrance, and behind this line were the treasure-laden ships of Cleopatra, which needed to be protected at all all costs. Agrippa knew that if he could exploit a weakness in line then he could potentially surround Antony's entire fleet. The southernmost right-hand flank of Octavian engaged directly with Antony's left-hand flank, with Octavian's marines attempting to board Antony's ships. Agrippa, then personally commanding the northernmost left-hand flank, attempted to stretch themselves out, attempting to surround Antony's right-hand flank. Antony reacted to this by stretching out his own personally commanded right-hand flank and preventing Agrippa's tactic. However, this would create a gap between the right-hand flank and the centre of Antony's formation which Agrippa would now try to exploit. Octavian's central fleet would surge forward in a bid to exploit this area of weakness and there were major exchanges between the two sets of ships. This would be the real thick of the Battle of Actium with both sets of ships in very close proximity and the infantry on board now almost able to see the whites of the eyes of their opponents. Projectiles were being exchanged and troops were attempting to board each other's galleys with many being set ablaze and the thick black clouds of smoke floating up from the wooden decks. Cleopatra would notice how engaged the two forces were and saw an opportunity to sail right through the middle with her treasures and into the open seas. Some accounts suggest that Mark Antony was flabbergasted by the apparent departure and abandonment of the battle by Cleopatra. But with Cleopatra's fleet purposefully standing off from direct engagement and laden with treasure, it seems that it was the sensible thing for her to be allowed to escape the battle. Whatever the truth is, It appears that Mark Antony decided to disassemble some of the wooden ballistas on his galleys and open up the sails so that he could also speed away from the battle. Some of Octavian's galleys would attempt to pursue Mark Antony in vain. Possibly as many as two thirds of Mark Antony's fleet were left to try and defend themselves without him. Perhaps as many as 10,000 of his men perished, with the remainder surrendering to Octavian. The armed forces of Mark Antony that had also been abandoned also were pressurized into surrendering to Octavian too. The battle was over. Aftermath. The fact that Antony's forces were abandoned at the scene of the battle meant that they were either condemned to their fate or just felt the need to switch their allegiance to Octavian. This would leave Mark Antony powerless. The longer the situation stayed the same before the battle, the weaker that Mark Antony's forces were becoming and it was thanks to the patience of the young Octavian that this was the case. Octavian decided that he should pursue Mark Antony to Africa in order to try to prevent him from using Egypt's wealth to build a new army. Mark Antony had to retreat to Alexandria and Octavian besieged the great city. Mark Antony's supporters quickly realised that they were fighting on the losing team and many chose to leave his side. With nowhere to go, Mark Antony took his own life to prevent any grisly outcome that Octavian would choose for him, such as a brutal death or years of incarceration. This paved the way for Octavian to take control of Egypt and soon Cleopatra realised that she and her offspring had no future and she also took her own life. Octavian and Agrippa would return to Rome as the victors, and it would only be a few short years until Octavian would be granted the honour of being the undisputed first statesman of Rome by the Senate. Agrippa would effectively be his number two, and it was around this time that Octavian would change his name to Augustus, and effectively be Rome's first emperor. It appeared that Augustus would be favouring Agrippa, as a potential successor with some even going so far as to say that Octavian would have never been able to become Emperor Augustus had it not been for the valuable contributions made to the Roman Republic by Agrippa. Unfortunately, Agrippa contracted an illness and died in March of 12 BCE, so he would never receive this opportunity. The reign of Augustus marked a time where there were no civil wars and a great resurgence of the Roman economy, including advances in art and culture as well as architecture. There were also some firm legal and judicial laws laid down to give Rome some stability and discipline. Eventually, Augustus would die as an old man in his late 70s and Rome had changed forever. There we go. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of the History of the World podcast on the Battle of Actium. The showdown between Octavian and Mark Antony, those natural successors to Julius Caesar. So we've learned a lot about this period, haven't we, in the last few weeks regarding the period um, when the Roman Republic started to decline and disintegrate. And um, we're going to have a look at it from a completely different perspective next week. We're going to, uh, as promised, take a look at the profile of Cleopatra Seventh of Egypt. She has quite a fascinating life story, so we'll explore that in more detail next week. I received an email this week from Deborah Friedel, who's put, Thank you for in- enhancing my life. What a fantastic email. She's put, how can I make a one-time donation? Well, uh, you can do that now on the website. You can actually go to buy me a book and make a one-time donation. It's possible. Um, When you do that, um, also when you sign up and make a contribution through um, the History of the World podcast Patreon page, which can also be found at the the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website, you become a lifelong member of the History of the World Podcast Illuminati, and we um, we welcome some more members to the History of the World Podcast Illuminati this week. We welcome Ben Smith, we welcome Fernando Silva, we also welcome uh, Brenda Wass. and we welcome Farhan Nurani. So thank you all, and welcome to the History of the World Podcast Illuminati. You are now lifelong members and uh, you are entitled to those rewards for which you qualify for as, as members of the History of the World Podcast Illuminati. So one of those new members of the History of the World Podcast Illuminati also sent me a message, Mr Fernando Silva has put, My name is Fernando from Chile. I've been listening to your podcast for a few months already and it's been a delight. Thank you for all your time and effort. Great quality of content, sound and catchy intro music. No one ever talks about my intro music. Goodness me, I composed it like in about 30 seconds uh, about two years ago. And um, and uh, it's, it's still there, it's still there to this day. So um, thank you for noticing the intro music. I discovered your podcast on Spotify out of serendipity and decided to write bedtime stories for my sons, Bruno and Dante, using ancient history themes with the evil hidden intention of igniting their love for history, and was looking for information about Eridu. During research, I found volume one of your podcast, and it's been hours and hours of listening from that point on. It entertains me while driving, doing house chores, my wife thanks you for that as well, and even late at night. I don't mean to join the ranks of those claiming that your voice puts them to sleep but for some reason it works. That that doesn't make me feel much better. Um, I'd like to thank you and it helps engrave the information in my subconscious but who knows. So please keep up the great work and looking forward to the upcoming episodes about the Roman Empire I hope you'll be able to include some info about Julian the Apostate and Attila the Hun when the time comes. Two of my favourite characters. Favourite historical characters. Be well. Um, That's a lovely message Fernando. Um, It's great to hear that you're. um, Trying to entice your sons into. uh, Seeing that there is a. a Fun side to history. That um, not all of us have been exposed to. During education. Sometimes it's. I've said it many times isn't it. It can be a very boring school subject. um, But. If you present it with a bit of enthusiasm, with a bit of structure, then it can really inspire the imaginations of everybody, young and old. So I believe that there is a place for good education of history, um, being taught in, a, in an entertaining way, and hopefully your sons will benefit from it. But thank you so much, Fernando, for that incredible message. Ben Smith um, sent a message through Patreon. And has put, Hey Chris, I found the podcast a few weeks ago and I've made it to episode 13. It's really nice to listen to when I'm driving or or running or doing the dishes. I like your accent, even though I can't quite place it. You really make it feel like a conversation. Just wanted you to know that your efforts are very appreciated. Cheers. Um, well, cheers for the message, Ben. Great message, thank you. Knickosko from Australia has uh given us five stars um put in history of the world podcast still catching up with episodes at September 25th still in lockdown still love the break from reality with great history stories i think maybe we uh we can consider ourselves maybe quite lucky that we've got the internet nowadays especially with this uh with this lockdown that we're experiencing in so many countries um, it, you can really feel isolated without all of this social media and um, and and these um, online media platforms that you can now get involved in. You no longer need to feel lonely in your own home. Um, you can um, explore the outside world through the wonder of the internet. I know it's not quite the same as going out and meeting people, but um, it's still something nonetheless. So um, we're p- I'm pleased that we're able to entertain. Uh, some of you who might be stuck indoors and not able to get out so um, thank you so much for that kind message well we're going to wrap up again this week thank you so much for listening to the podcast uh, next week we're going to uh, be looking at uh, the Pharaoh the queen of egypt Cleopatra the seventh who's been immortalized through um, uh, through artwork and through uh, through film. We're going to uh, take a proper look at her life and and find out really what she was all about and see if we can uh, work out whether this woman was a calculated temptress or or just simply a dutiful monarch. So that's next week. Thank you so much for listening this week. Um, Until next week, make sure that you be good and uh, we'll see you next time for more History of the World podcast. Do you want more from the History of the World podcast? Then visit our website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com. You can join our discussion forum and find us on social media. Support the podcast for as little as $1 per month by clicking the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. The best ones will be read out. Be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to us.